Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10, verses 25 through 36. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or look to the screens. I will be reading from the New International Version. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you, have ha you may have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. When you hear a, a familiar story like this, it's easy to just say to yourself, I've heard this one before. And I wonder if it would be helpful for us as people to admit the reality that many times when we come to the scriptures, we have a predetermined bias as to what the story is really about. And I wonder if during this Lenten season, what we can do is to set down our predetermined lenses of what we think the scripture is saying and what we think Jesus' mission is and set it aside. And I'm suggesting picking up another lens, which I had mentioned weeks ago, that is centered in Jesus' inauguration speech in Luke chapter 4, verse 19. So as we move through Luke's narrative through this Lenten season, what I'm asking us to do is to take up the lens of Luke chapter 4, verse 19, in which Jesus says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. And then he captures it by describing, this is what the year of the Lord's favor means, and this is what I'm about. As I'm on my way to Jerusalem, as I'm on my way to my death, my burial, and then ultimately my resurrection, where I make things right again. And if you remember in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus says, this is what I've come to do, he makes these declarations that I would call signposts of the kingdom of God. 
And those five signposts that we identified were he's declaring good news to the poor. He's come to set captives free, restore sight to the blind, set the oppressed free. And then it's all captured in the year of the Lord's favor. This is the thrust into Jesus' mission. And then as he moves into his mission and interacts with people, we see that he begins to demonstrate what it looks like when God is ruling and reigning on the earth. So in his teachings, in his parables, and then in demonstration. So he doesn't just teach. He doesn't just inform people and give good theology. He also follows up with demonstration. And he says, this is what it looks like when God is ruling and reigning. And so when I look at Jesus' actions and I look at the way that Jesus is moving through the earth and interacting with people, I then step back as a leader in the church and ask the question, does the church today look like Jesus' mission on the earth back then? And if not, if the church is moving further and further away from looking like the mission, these five signposts that Jesus came to proclaim and demonstrate, then the church then needs to step back and reorient itself around the mission of Jesus. And this is why we as your pastors are choosing to use this language where we're moving from disorientation into a reorientation around the way of Christ in the world. A step back into his way, into that maybe a level of discomfort and disorientation in and of itself, but in that disorientation, that kind of re-looking at things, maybe we find and rediscover the way of Jesus in the world. Now, this morning's text is framed in a question, and this question is a question that leads us back into a kind of orientation in the way of Jesus. So the question is, who is my neighbor? I want you to keep that in front of you as we move through the whole story. Who is my neighbor? Because we're going to come back to the question, and I'm going to ask you the question, who is your neighbor? And based on what Jesus does in this story, is that informing how we look at our neighbor? Now, a little bit of context to help us engage with the story well, this was a, a, a hot topic of discussion among teachers of the law and the rabbis during this time in history. This was a debate that was going on. And what I love about Jesus is that he steps right into the debate. So the debate of the day, Jesus doesn't remove himself from it, but he enters into the dialogue going on in these faith communities. The rabbis, the teachers of the law, or the lawyer, experts in the law, believed and taught that every human being was created in the image of God. So that means essentially there's a piece of the divine within every human being that you encounter. Now, however, and I want you to keep this in mind, it was a commonly held belief that Samaritans were excluded from that list. Put a bookmark in that, right? So on the page, when you turn the page over, because you're like, that's important. Keep that in mind. They were excluded from the list. Now, the debate comes out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. It says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this word neighbor comes from the Hebrew word reya, and reya is interpreted as someone nearby. And that pretty much clears it up, right? 
So who is your neighbor? Someone nearby. You're like, okay, what do you do with that? This is why rabbis, teachers of the law, lawyers had to interpret what that meant for their particular community. And whatever that rabbi determined, this is what is meant by neighbor, you then as a people would practice that as you learned how to walk with God on the earth. So the question might be like, well, who is my neighbor? Someone nearby. Does that mean my fellow Jew? Uh, does neighbor mean my family members? How about, could we push it out as far as to say, my neighbor is somebody within a 25-mile radius? Or, or could we even take it so far as to say your neighbor could be one of your enemies? I think there was a rabbi who said something about that in one of the texts in the Gospels. And I would say, well, I mean, up to a certain point, of course. So again, pushing out boundaries. Who is my neighbor? Now, as the debate is going on, and they're trying to live into the question, there were two things that people agreed upon across the board. Your neighbor could not be a pagan. Hmm, that sounds really safe. And your neighbor could not be a Samaritan. Isn't it interesting that they would say, Pagan? No. But then also deeper than that, Samaritan? Absolutely not. According to Jewish tradition, it is stated that he that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the flesh of swine. It's really a deep-seated racism that is inside the psyche of these people. There's that deep kind of hatred embedded in an entire group of people. And so we have to be constantly living with the tension of that deep kind of racism and hatred that can exist in us as people. Are we aware of those things going on inside of us? We see this in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 48, where people are talking about Jesus and they say this, are we not right in saying that you, Jesus, are a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? It's a likely conclusion that if you're a Samaritan, you probably have a demon in you as well. What are they doing? I think what they're doing is what so many of us do sometimes, is that when we don't understand a particular group of people or we're not in relationship with peoples, we dehumanize them. You see that going on in political discussions today? How quickly? There's all this hate speech going on. Depending on what uh, newscast you tune into, you can predetermine, oh, this is going to get ugly really fast. And all we're doing is, is blaming each other, hating each other, um, pushing people out, discrediting people even before we have discussions with them. There's all this hate speech happening in our culture in which we're separating out. And I, and I keep living in the question, all right, well, what is the church doing about all of that? Are we silent? Are we just assimilating into particular political parties? Or are we part of the debate? Are we part of the discussion? Are, are we living in the tension of, well, what's the way of Jesus in all of this? Because it can't be about hate, and it can't be about separation, and it can't be about dehumanizing people because they don't think like us or look like us or act like us. So we have to be honest enough to admit to ourselves, my gosh, how are we entering into the dialogue as Jesus' followers, are we dehumanizing people? Because it's easier to dehumanize people than it is to enter into dialogue and see that person as a divine image bearer. 
So let's step into the debate for a moment. The lawyer starts off a conversation with Jesus, a fellow expert in the law. And he asks the question, teacher, he acknowledges that he's a teacher. He acknowledges the fact that Jesus is in the dialogue. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when he says eternal life, he's not talking about the afterlife. He's talking about how do I live my most uh, complete whole life in God in the here and now? And so Jesus responds with a question like a rabbi would do to engage in the conversation. And he says, well, what's written in the law? What, is, what does the text say? And then he takes it further. How do you read it, right? So how do you interpret what is meant by who is my neighbor? And the lawyer with his vast knowledge of the Torah to prove the fact that he's an expert that he embraces with the text throws out some Deuteronomy. And you know you are really good at the Bible when you throw out some Deuteronomy, right? So he tosses a little of a Deuteronic wisdom into the game and he says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, well done, do this and you will live. And you think that's, that's it, that's the end of the discussion. Tie a bow on it, it's over. The expert of the law can walk away feeling really good about himself. Jesus and this person had a great exchange, but the lawyer has a bone to pick with Jesus. So he won't, he won't let it go. Seeking to justify himself, he then drops the question back to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, teacher of the law, who is my neighbor? Again, Jesus is right in the debate. And instead of stepping away from the debate, Jesus steps right into it, and he brings in a story. Now, Jesus is creating controversy wherever, wherever he goes. And clearly, with the religious ruling class, uh, they are at odds with one another. Um, the religious ruling class, is their primary concern is about keeping order, right? They want to keep order. They don't want chaos. They want people to follow the rules because they believe this is the best way to honor God, to live eternal life here on earth. And then Jesus keeps naming their hypocrisy after hypocrisy, and they're getting angry, and they want him out. And so this lawyer wants to prove that Jesus doesn't understand what it means to follow Torah. And so he tells a story. And then in verse 30 and 31, look on the screen for a moment. So we're back in the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Would you love it when the text is like, what do you mean half dead? What does that mean? A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now note, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a very narrow road. On one side, you had a tiny ditch, and on the other side, there was a, dry, a giant drop-off, which is called a wadi. And these wadis were like uh, rush zones where water and uh, flash floods would rise up and just blow through. I think Jesus said something about not building your house on a wadi, like build it up on the rocky ground because a flood might come. He's referring to something. So when he says, the priest and the Levite, come, come on this man who's bloodied and half dead in the ditch, and it says that they go to the other side. Think about that. Jesus is dropping some humor into the story here. Like, they went to the other side. 
which means they had to go all the way back to where they started and then cross over to the other side to keep going on their journey. This is an extreme thing that is going on in the story. Now, at this point, we're supposed to assume that these two characters in the story are the bad guys, right? These are the bad people in the story. These are the ones who are villainized. You could make that the point of the story, but I think if you do that, you're actually missing the true intent of the story. The man has been bloodied and beaten and left for dead. Now, as a Levite and a priest, you could not be in contact with blood. That's a big deal for a priest and a Levite. There's laws that state they can't be in contact with blood. The text also says that he was half dead, which you're like, what do you mean half dead? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word gosis, which means almost dead. And then Monty Python starts to come into your mind like, well, I'm only half dead or I'm almost always, I'm like almost dead. Like, what, is it, what does it mean to be almost dead? So priests and Levites were clearly informed by the Torah, you couldn't be in the presence of a blood or a bloody body. You couldn't be in the presence of somebody who was almost dead because then it would defile them. And if they got defiled, then their community was in danger of being defiled. So put yourself in their position for a moment. You're a teacher of the law. You're responsible for a whole community of people and you have laws and regulations that you're supposed to follow. And if you follow these laws, then you keep everybody else in order. That's a huge sense of responsibility. So I don't look at the priest and the Levite as the villains in the story. I just look like, well, they're probably a lot like us as religious people. That, that if we're honest with ourselves, we're probably more like them than we realize because we've got to keep order and we have to be faithful to the text. We have to be faithful to the law. They're just doing what the scripture says to do. And so Jesus brings in character number three. And at this point, you're supposed to assume, oh my gosh, so Jesus is going to bring the lawyer into the story, right? He's going to make the lawyer the hero. And the lawyer has got to be feeling really good about himself, thinking like, oh, he's going to set me up as the ideal. I love this story. And then Jesus does something really scandalous here. He says, and along comes a Samaritan. At that point, every jaw has dropped. Everybody's going, what the heck is he talking about? Now, we refer to this story as the Good Samaritan. This would be like for some of us to say, this is the story of the right-wing radical. Or we might say, this is the story of the left-wing extremist, the good left-wing extremist, the good right-wing radical. Remember, to the Jew, everyone had a piece of the divine within them except for Samaritans. We're really good at dehumanizing people, dismissing them. Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero in the story. And I think Jesus is taking this so far as to say, this is what God is like. Even Jesus himself would refer to, whatever you do unto the least of these, you also do unto me. Now we get to verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber. Now, how do you answer this question when you are full of hatred and anger towards a particular group of people or a person? Have you ever noticed 
how difficult it is to say a person's name when you are full of hate. When you no longer see them as human, when we dehumanize others because of their political affiliation, notice the lawyer's answer, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't do it. And Jesus says, actually, that's your neighbor. The Samaritan is your neighbor. Again, going back to the words of Jesus, whatever you do unto the least of these, you also do unto me. What happens when your neighbor is one of the least of these? What happens when your neighbor is someone that you hate? Do you see how being like the Samaritan and not being like the priest and the Levite, the religious people, actually misses the point of the story? Because when we make the story about being like the Samaritan, it can tap into our own spiritual pride and it avoids the real question. At least we're not like those people. And we can quickly assume that we're not like those people or we might say, I'm like the Samaritan in the story. But the reality is, again, we're missing the point. Because maybe we're more like the priest and the Levite than we care to admit. Because let's be honest, friends, it's a lot easier to follow the rules than it is to get in the trenches and love our enemies. It's a lot easier to keep order than it is to step into the way of Jesus. And let's be honest, we spend a great deal of time judging, criticizing others who are not like us because it's a lot easier. And we quickly miss the reality of how quickly we turn people into the other. In the story, Jesus makes the Samaritan the neighbor, which leaves us with a really big question as Jesus followers. Who is my neighbor? Who is the one I've dehumanized? Is there a group of people that I consider outside of the scope of God's redemptive love? Or how about this? Is my main source of news feeding this narrative? Is that which I'm giving my time and attention over to feeding into more hate speech? These are the villains. These are the ones that we need to avoid. And I think what Jesus does is he takes this neighbor dialogue and he puts himself in place of the neighbor by stating, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And he makes himself the hungry one, the naked one, the homeless one, the lonely, unwanted one. Pastor Elise and I were talking this week about, isn't it interesting that we get to this text in the same week that our city council is voting on whether we should keep homeless people on the island or keep them from encamping here. And the vote came down to six to one in favor of keeping them from encamping on the island and pushing them or forcing them into other places that are more capable of handling that kind of thing. And then I went back to a discussion that I had with Al Lopez. So Al, if you are listening, 
I hope I'm getting this story correct, but this is how I heard you, so you can correct me later if you like. But Al was sharing a story about how he had been working in downtown Seattle and would pass by homeless people every day on his way to work. And as he was thinking about walking in the way of Jesus, he realized, you know what? I don't know any homeless people. I don't know them by name. I don't know their story. So he made a decision. I'm going to step into the way of Jesus and I'm going to begin learning the names of people. Because what happens, instead of just categorizing people as that's them, this is us, Al decided I'm going to know them by name. And there's something significant in knowing a person's name and living into their story. Instead of asking the question or making assumptions, well, this person got there because of bad decisions, or maybe there's all kinds of decisions or all kinds of things going on under the surface that we don't fully understand about a person's life. And so simply entering into the story, knowing a person's name, knowing their story, taking the time to sit with them instead of dehumanizing people or pushing them into a category, he made a conscious decision to step into the way of Jesus. And he asked himself the question and he asked me the question, which I hate it when people turn it back to me. But he asked me the question, do I know a homeless person? And I asked myself the question, do I know a homeless person? You see, when you take the time to befriend someone, to know someone, to make sure we keep it where Jesus keeps it, you can't easily dismiss or dehumanize a person when you know them by name and know their story. Because it's a lot easier to make judgment calls on someone without taking the time to listen and enter into their life. I will ask us the question again because this is, this is coming from the text. Who is your neighbor? And who is the one that you've dehumanized? Maybe unknowingly. But do you have the courage to face that in and of yourself? I think this is a really good question for us as a congregation to ask ourselves as we think about the way forward, as we step into a orientation around the way of Jesus, I would like us to keep this question in the forefront of our minds. Who is our neighbor? What are we doing on this island? What are we doing? And what are we doing as Jesus followers? Have we identified our neighbor? I want to invite you along with me to enter into the driving narrative that's going on inside of your own story. And I invite you along with me to befriend, begin to befriend people who are different than you. And I realize that it's almost next to impossible to, do, to befriend people right now in a pandemic because we're not supposed to befriend anyone. But let us not dismiss that so easily and find ways as Jesus followers to enter into the story. I've come to bring good news to the Samaritan. I've come to set the captive free, to enter into the story. Jesus then ends his story and he says simply this, go and do likewise. So I leave you with those words this morning. And now, friends, I want you to remember something. You get to follow Jesus this week. 
That's what you get to do. You get to follow Jesus. You get to live in the way of Jesus. You get to love in the way of Jesus. You get to interact with your neighbor in the way of Jesus. He does not come to condemn, but he comes to bring life and healing and power. And he invites us into a better way, a third way, a life-giving way. So as you walk with Jesus this week, remember that you are loved deeply, affectionately, and may your love for others spill out of your life as you walk in the way of Christ. Go now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen.